Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, Jesus was invited to dinner by a Pharisee named Simon. So Jesus came over, and while he was there, a woman who was known throughout the community as a notorious sinful woman just barged on in. She wasn't invited, but she came in there with a flask of alabaster ointment perfume. She knelt down to anoint Jesus' feet with it, and this was a huge social embarrassment for the Pharisee. But Jesus didn't say anything about it, and as the woman kneeled down there to anoint his feet, she started to cry, and her tears hit his feet. So she wiped them off with her hair and then kissed his feet before anointing them with the ointment perfume. Meanwhile, the Pharisee went from being embarrassed in front of Jesus to being insulting toward him. And he said, if this man really were a prophet, he'd know who and what this kind of woman is who's kissing and anointing his feet. And then Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon said, teacher, say it. And Jesus said, there was a man who had loaned money to two people. One of them owed him 50 days wages. The other owed him 500 days wages. When both of them couldn't pay him back, he forgave them both. Now, of those two, which one will love him more? Then the Pharisee said, well, I suppose the one who owed him more. And Jesus said, that's right. Look at this woman. When I came in here, you didn't anoint my head with oil, as is the custom of all hosts to do for their guests when they come over. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with rare, costly perfume. When I came in, you didn't greet me with a kiss on the cheek, but since she's come in here, she hasn't ceased from continually kissing my feet. So all of her sins, as many as they are, her sins are forgiven her because she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus tells the woman to go in peace and that her faith has saved her. It wasn't the actions that saved her, but her faith. That faith is what got her in there to begin with. It was her faith that drove her to his feet with the ointment perfume. Both the Pharisee and the sinful woman were fallen human beings. So Jesus' upcoming work on the cross would forgive the sins of both of them. But because the sinful woman was forgiven more, and she knew that, by the way, that's why she came in there to anoint his feet, she seemed to know who Jesus really was and why he was here. He was here to perform the letter of the law and be a spotless sacrifice for her sins. She knew that. She got it. And that's why she couldn't stop herself from going in there. And it's also why she was overwhelmed with tears when she knelt down to anoint his feet. Pharisee didn't do any of that. Now, the next thing that happened that we talked about was so chaotic that we didn't get through all of it last time. Jesus had just healed a man of demonic possession. What made this particular healing special is that this man was blind and dumb. The Jewish religious leaders had their own system of casting out demons, but one of the things they had to do in order to cast out a demon was to force the demon or demons to identify themselves so that the demon could be ordered by name to come out of its victim. Whether or not that was necessary is irrelevant. The fact remains they thought it was necessary, and apparently they couldn't cast out the demons without knowing their name. So when a demonic possession resulted in making its victims speechless, then nothing could be done. But this didn't stop Jesus. So after Jesus healed this blind and dumb man of being possessed, it made a huge impact on people. People were stunned. There was a huge crowd gathered around who witnessed all of this, and they were all marveled. But then some Pharisees there heard the praises of the crowd and then said, He only casts out demons because he himself is possessed by a demon. He casts out demons by the help and with the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. 
And with that, then the crowds turned on him. Not all of them, but a lot of them apparently did because they picked up on it and ran with it. Yeah, yeah, show us a sign from heaven. Now, to add tension to this situation, Jesus' immediate family, his mother, brothers, and sisters, show up to physically intervene and take him out of there because they had decided amongst themselves that Jesus had gone mad. This whole business of being the Messiah had just gone too far because it says they said to themselves, Jesus is beside himself. He's deranged. But because of the crowd, they couldn't get to him, so Jesus then made his way to a house with his disciples to eat. But the crowds follow and join in, and because the crowd is so thick, Jesus and his disciples can't even sit down to eat. And the Pharisees also followed and continued to say, He is possessed by a demon and cast out demons by the help of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So Jesus finally responds and says, That doesn't make any sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then by whose power do your sons drive them out? A man can't break into a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. Only one stronger than he can bind him and then pillage his house. In that parable, Jesus was the one stronger than the strong man. He was saying only one stronger than Satan can cast out demons. So first of all, it doesn't make any sense that I could do it by the power of Beelzebub because Beelzebub is underneath Satan. It was commonly believed that Beelzebub was a single fallen angel that was personally appointed by Satan himself to rule underneath him. And he took on the identity of the pagan god Baal. So Beelzebub wouldn't be able to cast out the demons because he's beneath Satan. Only one stronger than Satan could cast them out. So Beelzebub wouldn't be able to do it. And even if he could cast them out, he wouldn't because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus pointed out thoroughly the logical flaws in their accusation. And then he told them, but if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then it's a different kingdom that's come upon you, a kingdom you weren't ready for or expecting. And that's where we had to leave it last time because this chaotic situation isn't over, folks. Because even though he's thoroughly refuted the accusation, they keep saying it. And Jesus is about to make some very controversial statements here that require some special attention that we just didn't have the time to get into last week. Now, when we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 30, we're going to find out that the Pharisees kept persisting in saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit. That's why, if you'll notice, that Jesus' response seems to go back and forth between different audiences. Remember, he's got four groups of people there hearing everything he has to say. He's got his personal family members who are there to take him out of there because they think he's gone mad. He's got his disciples there who need as much education as they can possibly get concerning the topic of demonic possession and how it works. He's got the Pharisees there making the accusations that he's demon-possessed. And then he's got the people in the crowd who are being deceived by what the Pharisees are saying. So as we read what Jesus says here, you can tell he's going back and forth addressing everything to everyone all at once. He'll get real deep concerning something, obviously speaking to his disciples, but then he'll dumb things down to explain to others the flawed logic of what the Pharisees are saying to fight back any deception that their accusations might be making. And then he makes some accusations himself and speaks aggressively with anger. And that's obviously directed towards the Pharisees because unlike everybody else who's there, they aren't deceived but are the ones doing the deceiving. That's why back in Matthew 12:25 and Luke 11:17, before Jesus began this entire defense against the Pharisees' accusation, it says that he knew their thoughts and was well aware of their intent and purpose. Those in the crowd who may have bought the idea that Jesus could have been casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub were being deceived. So he peels away the deception from their minds, one layer at a time with flawless logic. 
But the Pharisees knew better, and Jesus knew they knew better. That's why he doesn't even bother to debate with them. Instead, he just tells them, He who isn't with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. But then turning his attention towards his disciples, Jesus follows this up with even more about how demons work, and specifically demonic possession. And what he's fixing to get into here is kind of neat, because he's going to give us an insight as to what happens to a demon after it's been expelled from its victim. And this is in Luke chapter 11, verses 24 to 28. Jesus said, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it roams through waterless places in search of rest. Now that kind of gives us a couple of weird but neat little insights. Nobody knows why, but for some reason, demons do tend to hang around dry, waterless places. Whether it's the proverbial abandoned haunted house or the hottest regions of Africa or the surrounding areas around Israel, demons hang around dry and waterless places. And nobody knows why. Although people do come up with all kinds of neat little theories, and I've got my own theory, but to be honest, none of us really know, but they do it. There's something about dry, waterless places that appeal to demons. The second insight in this little statement is that it shows that demons are territorial. They can and do exist in places of their choosing. They do have locality. But they're almost like animals in the sense that they're wanderers. For some reason, the drier a place is, the less water the place has, the more they find it appealing as a place to rest. And with that little insight, it's interesting. Las Vegas, also known as the sin capital of the world, could have been built anywhere. But it just so happens that it was born and flourishes right dab in the middle of the hottest, driest, lifeless spot anywhere in the entire country. I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, don't misunderstand. Demons are not confined to hot places. That's just their personal preference when they aren't possessing a human body. But a human body is their highest preference. Jesus is giving us some insights into demons and demonic possession. He's telling us what happens with a demon after it's been driven out of a person that's possessed. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it roams through waterless places in search of rest. And finding none... It then says, I will go back to my house from which I came. Uh-oh. And when it arrives, it finds the place swept and put in order and furnished and decorated. And it goes and brings other spirits, seven of them, more evil than itself. And they enter in and settle down and dwell there. And then the last state of that person is worse than the first. Wow. Not all demonic possession is like the case seen in The Exorcist, folks, where the entire body just shuts down and turns into a gruesome monster. When that happens, it's more of a disadvantage to the demon because it gets found out. What's more advantageous to a demon is to possess the body of someone whose mind is already on the same track as theirs, so that the two separate intellects, the two separate wills, become one. The closest example that I can think of in science fiction might be like the Trills from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Dax is a host of two separate entities, her own and something else that lives inside her. So she's a host of two separate entities with two separate lives, two separate souls, but after the joining, they become one until the host dies and the trill is surgically implanted into a new host. Funny thing about that is, on the TV show, the trills are good guys. And the hosts volunteer for the position and actually compete for it, and it's considered a high honor if they're chosen. But because of the battle of the wills in demonic possession, there are always physical and mental problems that come with possession. 
the more physically and mentally impaired they make their host, then the more physically and mentally impaired the demon itself becomes. My friend Crystal gave them the perfect label. They are the ultimate parasite. So what a demon tries to do is find a body to possess in which that person won't fight them. The more submissive the host, the easier it is for the demon to take over, and the less harm it will cause physically and mentally to the host's body and mind. But no matter how submissive the host is, in the long run, the human body always reacts to the inner conflict that comes with demonic possession. Always. Sometimes it takes longer than others, but it always comes about. And when the demon has done all but kill its host, it then goes to find another one. But Jesus here is referring to a demon that didn't leave but was expelled. It was kicked out. It was forced to leave before it was ready to leave. Physical and mental damage had been done to the host, but not so much that the demon was ready to leave. It was forced to leave. And in that case, Jesus is saying that while the demon is gone, roaming around looking for rest in dry, waterless places, the body of the once possessed is healing. The host heals mentally and physically. Just about the time the demon comes back and finds everything neat and orderly, swept up and decorated because the host probably even went to counseling to get some self-esteem back. So now things are just like they were when the demon first possessed him way back when. But instead of just moving back in, to try to force the host to be more submissive and prevent any further damage, it brings with it seven more spirits more evil than itself. And they enter in, settle down, and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. You know, I like the fact that Jesus chooses to use a house as an idiom for the body in this case. Because if you've got someone who keeps breaking and entering into a house, say a homeless person or a robber or somebody, which kind of house will an intruder break into first? One that's empty or one where there's someone sitting in the living room watching over the house? To keep evil demonic spirits out, the Holy Spirit has to be put in, folks. If you're reborn in the Holy Spirit, you're stamped and sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit. And then demons have no way of breaking and entering into your body. None. They wouldn't want to do it in the first place. But even if they did want to do it, they wouldn't be able to get anywhere. There's several reasons why Paul chose to use the words locked and sealed in the Holy Spirit. But without that lock, casting out a demon actually makes things worse. That's why I said earlier that these psychics and mediums who think they can cast out demons aren't helping anybody. They're actually making things worse. Because those psychics and those mediums are not interested in people becoming reborn in the Holy Spirit. So if they somehow do manage to get a demon to leave their victim's body, and that's extremely rare, folks. If they do leave, it's because they chose to leave to follow the psychic to another customer. I've heard where psychics and mediums, even though they don't believe in the name of Jesus Christ, they somehow are aware that demons are afraid of that name. And so they sometimes use the name of Jesus Christ to drive out a demon themselves, which I find that whole scenario incredible. But if and when that happens, they've only made things worse. Because the victim's body is still empty and open for intrusions. And as Jesus said, after the demon roams around looking for rest, it eventually discovers that it can find no rest. So it decides to go back where it was. Only this time, to prevent from being cast out again, at least in its own way of thinking, it brings back with him several other demons more evil than itself, and then the poor victim is worse off than before. Now, the reason why Jesus is getting into all of this with his disciples and the crowd around him isn't known, but one possibility 
is that what Jesus just described is what actually happened to the guy he just healed. That's one view. Earlier, Jesus' response to the Pharisees, after they accused him of casting out the demons by the help of Beelzebub, he said, if I cast them out by the help of Beelzebub, by whose help do your sons drive them out? Jesus could have just used that as a retort, but was he being more specific? It's possible that this guy had been possessed and cured before by the proverbial sons that Jesus referred to. But then after finding no place to rest, the demon came back to this same guy, finding the place empty, brought in others with him, making things worse than before, making him blind and dumb. Is that what this is all about? We do know that to be true of Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8, first three verses mention that Jesus had healed her of demonic possession and she had been possessed by seven demons. And since then, she's been following along with Jesus and his disciples, helping provide for their needs. She became a serious follower after that. Now Luke chapter 11 verse 27 says, Now it occurred that as he was saying these things, a certain woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey and practice it. You see the chaos that this scenario has become. Jesus just spent the last few minutes putting out the fire that the Pharisees started about him being possessed by Beelzebub. And then, out of nowhere, a woman yells out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. Like, what's that got to do with anything? Now, the Protestants have had a field day with this because what the woman said almost sounds like part of the Hail Mary. And Jesus cuts it down right quick and says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey and practice it. Now, personally, I think the reason why this woman said that is because Mary is there in the crowd trying to get to Jesus, and Jesus hasn't even acknowledged her yet. He knows she's there with his brothers to seize him by force because they think he's lost his mind, but they can't get to him because of the crowds. So a woman in the crowd, seeing Mary, knowing she's trying to get to Jesus but can't, may have just been trying to help Mary get Jesus' attention. But Jesus quickly responds, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey and practice it. But then after that, Jesus turns his attention right back onto the Pharisees, and he begins to make some very serious, scathing accusations against them. Just out of nowhere, it seems. But when we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 30, we'll find out that the Pharisees continued to say that Jesus was possessed by a demon. That's the only problem with reading text instead of hearing it, is that you don't get the benefit of hearing how some of this dialogue from different sources probably bled over on top of each other. But right after Jesus responds to the woman, he turns his attention right back to the Pharisees who were continually accusing him of being demon-possessed, and he makes the following bold and scary statement. Luke doesn't record this part of the conversation, but Mark and Matthew do. Mark's is short and sweet. In Mark chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, Truly and solemnly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven unto the sons of men. And whatever abusive and blasphemous things they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit can never get forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. For they, that is the Pharisees, they kept saying that he has an unclean spirit. You don't catch it in the English, but in the original Greek, the word translated say implies continually saying. It's present tense active. In other words, they persisted in saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Matthew's record of that statement is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. It records that Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, all manner of every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not and cannot be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven, either in this world and age, or in the world and age to come. Okay, let's slow down and take a look at this. How many of you have heard of the unforgivable sin, also known as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? A lot of us have heard about it. It comes from this single statement of Jesus' recorded right here. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the entire Bible. It's right here and only here. If something is extremely important, the Bible usually talks all about it throughout the entire bandwidth of the text, from Genesis to Revelation, right? John 3.16 is not the only place in the Bible that the doctrine of John 3.16 is found. It's all throughout the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke. It's saturated throughout the entire book of John. That's what Romans is all about, Galatians, Ephesians, the whole New Testament. And the more you understand John 3.16, you discover that it's not just a New Testament concept either. You'll find it sprinkled out all throughout the Old Testament. It's cryptic, but with the hindsight of the New Testament, it's crystal clear, whether you're talking about the scenario with Abraham and Isaac or several other things. What about the end times? That's pretty important. It's not just in Revelation. It's in First and Second Thessalonians, Jude, all throughout Matthew, especially Matthew 24. It's in Malachi, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. What about prayer? The whole Bible covers that, especially the book of Psalms. That whole book is a collection of prayers. And what about sin in general? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, go all the way up to Revelation. The whole Bible talks about sin. But of all the sins that it devotes so much attention to, you would think it would spend more time talking about the one sin that Jesus himself has called unforgivable. Folks, that's scary. We take a lot of comfort in the doctrine of the cross, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We take comfort in that doctrine, and we take comfort in the doctrine of salvation by faith alone and God's grace. That's what Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians is all about. And no matter how bad we screw up, grace is sufficient enough to cover that screw up so we can pick ourselves back up and move on. No reason to dwell on it. John's letters point that out. Just confess it to the Lord in prayer. He knows all about it anyway. Just confess it, repent of it, and move on. The letter to the Hebrews says the same thing and adds that we don't have to be afraid of doing that because we have a God who understands and shares in our feelings of weakness to the assaults of temptation because it says Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been tempted but without sinning. So we can boldly and without fear and without guilt approach the throne of grace. That's in the book of Hebrews. We read all of that and take comfort in that, but then we hear of one particular sin called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's a sin that Jesus himself said is unforgivable. We hear about that and get scared because we start to wonder, have we committed that sin? Have we committed the unforgivable sin? Boy, I hope not. We know it's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but that's all we know about it. What does that mean? We know what the Holy Spirit is, and we know what blasphemy is. But how does one blaspheme the Holy Spirit? People have come up with all kinds of definitions of what they think it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. 
the most famous one that I've heard that hurts more people than anything else is the view that committing suicide is the unforgivable sin. They say it's unforgivable because it's the only sin that you can commit in which there's no time to repent because you're dead. But that's not true, first of all, because you can repent of a sin while you're committing it. That's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. Paul thoroughly hammered that one down. It's kind of a weird idea of repenting of a sin while you're committing it, but Romans chapter 7 gets into all of that. And second of all, repentance itself is a confusing topic. If you're saved, that means you've repented of all your sins, past, present, and future. You're acknowledging that you're a sinful, imperfect, fallen creature that needs God's grace. Being saved doesn't mean you've decided to be perfect from now on. That's arrogant. But the main reason why people say suicide is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is because the human body of the Christian is called the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And they say by committing suicide, you're destroying the temple of the Holy Spirit, which in turn is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But if you're going to go down that line of reasoning, then dying of lung cancer after smoking cigarettes for 50 years or dying of a heart attack after eating fried foods for 50 years is also blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Are they going to hell? Well, Josh, that's a little different because that takes longer. So what? If anything, that makes it even worse. Someone who commits suicide sins only for a moment with a lapse in judgment. If you die of lung cancer or heart disease from smoking or eating fried foods for 50 years, then that means you've spent 50 years continually blaspheming the Holy Spirit with plenty of time to change things. So your little slice of hell is going to be even worse. That is, if you're going to go down that line of thinking. When Christians get a tattoo, that's just like painting graffiti on the temple walls of the Holy Spirit. Are those people going to hell? Of course not. Blasphemy against the temple of the Holy Spirit is not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit itself. Otherwise, every sin in the entire Bible would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because all sins are committed by the flesh. Aren't they? And when Jesus brought up blasphemy against the Holy Spirit here in Matthew and Mark, nobody here in this scenario has committed suicide. So instead of making stuff up, let's actually look at this passage, look at its context, and see what this means. Mark chapter 3, verse 30. Jesus said, Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit can never get forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now that's the first thing I want you to notice. It says they can never get forgiveness. It doesn't say that they won't get it. It says they can't get it. In other words, there is something that is in the way preventing forgiveness from getting through. Is that a fair assessment of that? It doesn't say God doesn't forgive that sin. It says that it can't be forgiven. And then it says, For they, that is the Pharisees, persisted in saying, He has an unclean spirit. So those who have rejected the suicide view, who actually crack open the Bible to see what it says, will turn to this verse and then from this make the assumption that verbally saying something out loud that insults the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that is a sin that is unforgivable and that even the cross won't cover it. And that's the traditional view of what this means. But folks, if that's what the unforgivable sin is, it doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any rational sense, and yet, that's what it sounds like it means when you look at these verses right here in front of us. And don't look anywhere else to find confirmation. See, that's how we Christians today read our Bibles. It sits somewhere closed until we have a question. Then we do a Google search for our particular question, find out where the relevant passage is. Then we turn to those few verses, read them and say, Aha, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is verbally saying something out loud that insults the Holy Spirit. Yep, that's what it means. But folks, if that's what this means, then why is this the only place in the entire Bible that it appears? 
I mean, we're talking about people's souls. We're talking about their eternity. If verbally saying something out loud that insults the Holy Spirit is so horrible that it's unforgivable, then why does God only devote three verses to it in Matthew and two verses in Mark? The way God put the Bible together was awesome. Everything vitally important is mentioned not just once or twice, but countless times throughout the Bible. So why is a sin that is unforgivable only mentioned once in these five little verses? I think the reason why is because our predetermined, preconceived notions of what the unforgivable sin actually is, is not accurate. The sin itself is unforgivable. We know that for certain. But our predetermined definition of the unforgivable sin is not accurate. Because this is the only place in the entire Bible that our preconceived notion will fit. It's like trying to cram a puzzle piece whenever you try to put a puzzle together. Once in a while, you will find pieces that fit together that don't belong together. But then when you do that, then the overall picture will wind up with some missing pieces over here and then some extra pieces left over over there that we don't know what to do with. So if blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means something other than what we commonly believe it to mean, then this isn't the only place in the entire Bible that it appears. Turn to John 3.16. The unforgivable sin is very important, and it is talked about all throughout the Bible. But the terminology that's so famous to us, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that terminology isn't used anywhere else. So we don't make the connection. But the act itself, that is the unforgivable sin, it is talked about all throughout the Bible. In John 3.16, Jesus told Nicodemus that God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave up his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal everlasting life. And that's a pinnacle verse of Christianity. But then right after that, in the very next verse, John 3.17 Jesus told Nicodemus that God didn't send his son into the world to judge it, but to save it. And then right after that in John 3.18, he said anyone who puts their trust in him to be the author of their salvation will not be judged. And that's pretty crucial, folks, because we tend to think that getting into heaven is about getting a passing grade after God judges us. But that's not the case. Jesus said the way to heaven is by escaping judgment altogether. And the only way to escape God's judgment is to not be in God's debt. From God's point of view, your debt is either paid off, paid in full, or it's not. There's no middle ground. We're not capable of paying off that debt. That's why Jesus became our balance transfer. Either your debt has been transferred over to Jesus, or it hasn't. That's why Jesus said that anyone who puts their trust in him will not be judged at all. Because there's no need to be hauled into court if there's no debt to pay off. There will be no judgment. But then right after that, still in John 3.18, Jesus said something about those who don't accept that balance transfer, who remain in God's debt and disbelieve. Jesus told Nicodemus that they've been judged already. Can you be forgiven if you've been judged already? I don't think so. It says those who disbelieve have been judged already. And the word disbelieve in the original Greek there is active. In other words, it's done on purpose. They're not deceived. They know what they're doing. So don't confuse a passive disbelief out of ignorance or confusion with what Jesus is getting into here. And then right after that, in John 3, 19, Jesus told Nicodemus why they've been judged already and why they actively disbelieve. It's because the light has come into the world 
And they loved the darkness more than the light, because their deeds were evil. What did he mean by that? He's not talking about the regular Joe who just hadn't figured it out yet. Jesus is talking about a disbelief that is an active choice. They disbelieve on purpose. They're not deceived by a lack of information or even disinformation. They willfully deceive themselves. It's not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. We may not see it, but God does. He knows the heart. That's why I wanted to stress to you how all of this got started. It said Jesus knowing their thoughts and being well aware of their intent and purpose. That's why Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. He didn't say it in his mind. He said it in his heart. But by doing so, he makes himself out to be a fool. His mind knows better, but his heart says otherwise, and then he shapes his mind to accept a lie, forcing his view of reality to be what his heart wants it to be, rather than what it actually is. Even when that lie is baseless, ridiculous, or absurd... The Pharisees knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't want him to be the Messiah. So they made themselves out to be fools. And they came up with this ridiculous, absurd lie that Jesus was only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. I mean, it's absurd. How could Satan cast out Satan? And why? I mean, the whole thing is absurd. So why does Jesus in Matthew call this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's because, according to John 16, verse 13, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And it's the Holy Spirit's personal mission to declare and reveal the truth. And he never testifies of himself, but only testifies what he hears from the Father, and only honors and glorifies the Son. Had the Holy Spirit gotten through to these Pharisees? If he hadn't, then they were just deceived, and actually believed that Jesus was possessed. And if that's the case, then warning people that Jesus is a fraud would be the right thing to do. Even though it would have been misguided to do that because they would be incorrect in their assessment, the intent and purpose would have been a good thing. My gosh, remember Paul? He was actively trying to wipe out Christianity, folks. He was trying to wipe out the church, the entire body of Christ, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But God knew he was deceived. So God straightened him out, and Paul became one of the biggest contributors to the New Testament. And all God said to him was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, Jesus knew that he was deceived, and he just needed a knock off his ass. And that experience must have been incredible. But notice with these Pharisees, Jesus doesn't say, Pharisees, Pharisees, why do you persecute me? No, he doesn't do that. Jesus is angry. Because these Pharisees know he's the Messiah, and they are actively choosing not to believe. They're unreachable, because technically they've already been reached. They've already been reached, but they chose to disbelieve. We don't pick up on that when we read about the unforgivable sin in Matthew and Mark, because all we can see are their external actions. And those external actions, in their case, was verbally telling people that Jesus was only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. We make the assumption that these individual Pharisees were deceived, and in their deception they went too far and blasphemed the Holy Spirit when they said that. But what they said was not their sin, because it says Jesus made this entire rebuke to the Pharisees knowing their thoughts and being well aware of their intent and purpose. They actively chose not to believe, in spite of what they knew to be true. They stood there knowing Knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, knowing he was casting out those demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
They stood in the presence of God himself in the flesh and accused him of being demon-possessed. That is what the unforgivable sin is, folks. That is what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. It's not unforgivable because it's so horrible and so evil that even God in all of his love can't forgive it. It's unforgivable because the forgiveness itself that God offers is being purposely rejected. Now, those of us who are already saved might ask, well, why would anybody want to do that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I would agree with you, but Jesus said they'd do it because they love the darkness more than the light. See, you can't love one thing more than something else unless you know about both. You can't hate one thing more than something else unless you know about both. It's an active choice. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. And read some of that chapter because Paul really expounds on this concept of purposefully rejecting the truth and it being an unforgivable sin. Let's start in verse 18. It says, God's wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who in their wickedness repress and hinder the truth and make it inoperative. See, you can't hinder the truth unless you first know what the truth is so you can fight against it. Paul continues, it says, For that which is known about God is evident to them, and it's made plain in their inner consciousness because God himself has shown it to them. Wow! How did he do that? By the Holy Spirit, the one that John told us is the bearer of truth, who never testifies of himself, but only testifies of Jesus Christ and glorifies him. And when the Holy Spirit does that, he uses many tools. But Paul mentions the creation as a tool. Verse 20, it says, For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that have been made. Therefore, men are without excuse, because when they knew and recognized him as God, they did not honor and glorify him as God or give him thanks, but instead they became futile in their thinking with vain imaginings, foolish reasoning, stupid speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now in Romans chapter 1, Paul here is talking about the Holy Spirit using the creation as a tool to communicate. You would think that biologists would be the very first group of scientists to recognize a creator. With all of their discoveries of microscopic machines, not chaotic globs of junk, but finely tuned machines... We'd call it artificial intelligence if we were to make stuff like that. But when they discover it, they come up with vain imaginings, foolish reasoning, stupid speculation about how it all happened by itself through genetic mutation, which is just a fancy word for something that's become retarded. But its retardation actually makes things work better, so it becomes accepted. It's evolution, you see. If we were to create a machine that does the same thing a human body does, we would call ourselves geniuses. But when God does it, we say it happened by itself. Romans 1, verse 22, Paul continues and says, While claiming to be wise, they become fools. Now Paul here is talking about how God uses the creation to communicate. But these Pharisees, they had more than the creation. They actually had Jesus standing right there in front of them, folks. What does God do with people who actively disbelieve like that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 24, God gives them up. He washes his hands of them and makes no more effort to get through because he's gotten through. And verse 25 tells it it's because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, being deceived isn't exchanging the truth for a lie. Being deceived is being deceived. But exchanging the truth for a lie is loving the darkness more than the light. 
Jesus said to Nicodemus that these people love the darkness more than the light. And in the original Greek, it means more than and instead of the light. Instead, they're making an exchange. These Pharisees loved the darkness more than and instead of the very light that was standing right there in front of them. That is why Jesus is really angry. He's not angry because they're stupid. He's not angry because they don't get it. He's angry because they do get it. And they have willfully chosen sides against him. Now, in Matthew's record of this statement, it records that Jesus said, All manner of every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not and cannot be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Either in this world and age, or in the world and age to come. Now because of that last line there, some have made the conjecture that the unforgivable sin can't be committed unless Jesus is literally standing on the earth. Because they interpret this world and age as the time of Jesus' first coming. And they interpret world and age to come as the time of his second coming. And that makes a lot of sense. It really does. But once again, let's be careful here. Because if that's what that really means, then this is the only place we can find it. So let's don't pick up stuff like that and fly with it. That might be what this means, but we have to make sure that we're not trying to make it fit right here just to make it work without any confirmation elsewhere in the Scripture. Because I actually think it's Jesus' poetic way of just saying never. Neither in this age or the age to come. Not now, not ever. When we hear the phrase unforgivable, we're talking about an act in which the performer of that act has been judged already. And they cannot be forgiven. And that isn't just confined here, but all throughout the Bible. John chapter 3, Romans chapter 1, and several other places where it spells it all out. To actively disbelieve, you have to first bulldoze your way through the Holy Spirit to do it. You have to almost literally tackle him down to the ground, tie him up, and then step on the back of his head, pushing his face in the dirt to get away from him, folks. And that's exactly what these Pharisees have done. All of this started off with it saying, Jesus said to them, knowing their thoughts, and being well aware of their intent and purpose. When they said, Jesus only cast out demons because he himself is demon-possessed, what they said was not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's why they said it, that they've committed the unforgivable sin. And then he lets them have it. And he's not finished. Jesus continues these accusations against the Pharisees, and only Matthew, the shorthand expert, got it all recorded. This is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 37. Jesus says to them, Either make the tree sound and its fruit sound, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For a tree is known by its fruit. I love it when Jesus gets sarcastic. <laughs> these Pharisees are evil men who are against Christ, but their public profession is religious leadership. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be evil, be evil. You know, it'd be one thing if these were managers of a prostitution ring or something, but no, they're Pharisees, religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, make up your minds. He said, either make the tree sound and its fruit sound, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For a tree is known by its fruit. You offspring of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? See, they aren't stupid. They're not deceived. Jesus is really angry here because these Pharisees have shown themselves to be pure evil, wearing the clothes of religious leadership and claiming to be representatives of God to the people. And here they are lying to the people about who Jesus is and knowing that's exactly what they're doing. You offspring of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. See? 
problem is in the heart. The mouth is only the outward shoot for what's in the heart. For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus continues and says, The good man from his inner good hurls forth good things. And the evil man out of his inner evil hurls forth evil things. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will have to give an account for every idle word they speak. For by your word you will be justified and acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned and sentenced. Now here, Jesus is touching upon two things. If you're a Christian, there won't be a judgment against sin. All of those are going to be paid for, paid in full. But there will be a judgment seat of rewards for Christians. We talked about that before. Hell is no longer an issue. Sin is no longer an issue. But concerning rewards, what we do here and now matters as to how much and what kind of rewards we're going to get. And unfortunately, every idle word we've spoken will play a part in those judgments for rewards. But of those who are not saved... Apparently, there's different levels and degrees of punishment. And in that context, how much and what kind of eternal punishment the unsaved gets will partially hang on every idle word they've spoken. And the reason why is because it's out of the fullness of the heart that the mouth speaks. Now, what follows all of that should have been just absolute silence. But no, these evil Pharisees are not finished mocking after Jesus' perfect rebuke. I mean, it was flawless. They respond back to him with the following in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and 39. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we just desire to see a sign or a miracle from you proving that you are who you claim to be. But he replied to them, An evil and adulterous generation and a generation unfaithful to God seeks and demands a sign. But no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Luke chapter 11 verse 29 to 30 records that Jesus said, No sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will also the Son of Man be a sign to this age and generation. What does that mean, folks? Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 continues it. says, Jesus said, For even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is talking about the three days and three nights between the time he will die on the cross and the morning he will rise from the grave. That's what he's getting into, folks. Now, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, and that's a neat little story all by itself. Nineveh had become so pagan and so lost that God told Jonah to warn Nineveh that if they didn't straighten up, God was going to wipe them out. And Jonah hated Nineveh for the very same reasons why God was going to wipe them out. So Jonah decided not to warn Nineveh. <laughs> Isn't that spooky? But then, of course, you know the story. God sent some kind of giant fish to swallow up Jonah. Nobody really knows what it was that swallowed him up. The King James called it a whale. More modern translations call it a great sea monster. The old language simply called it a great fish. Whatever it was, it was acting under direct orders from God, and it swallowed up Jonah for three days and nights while Jonah had time to think about the situation. So then he repented, and then the great fish threw him up on the shore, and Jonah went to Nineveh just like God told him to do. And then afterwards, Jonah went up on a hill to watch the fireworks. Oh boy, today's the day Nineveh gets wiped out. This is going to be fun. But something happened that Jonah didn't expect. Nineveh actually repented. From the king all the way down to the serpents. So God spared them. But there's a double meaning behind what Jesus is getting into here with this comparison. The Pharisees demanded a sign. 
And Jesus told them, here's your sign. Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, don't worry. You'll get your sign when you kill me and bury me, and three days later I show up again walking around like nothing happened. But then both Matthew and Luke report according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 to 42, and Luke chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they actually repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone more than Jonah and greater than Jonah is here. Yeah, no kidding. Nineveh actually listened to Jonah. <laughs> Nineveh actually listened to Jonah, but you won't listen to your Messiah. Jesus continues and says, The Queen of the South, she will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone more than Solomon and someone greater than Solomon is here. And that's in First Kings chapter 10. And again in Second Chronicles chapter 9. He's talking about the Queen of Sheba. She didn't believe, but she came and listened to Solomon and then was convinced. So again, Jesus is saying, even Sheba listened to Solomon. But you won't listen to your Messiah. And then Jesus repeats himself again about what happens with victims of demonic possession, obviously addressing the crowds. But he puts a devastating twist on it and says, according to Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, it roams through dry, arid places in search of rest. But it does not find any. Then it says, I will go back to my house from which I came out. And when it arrives, it finds the place unoccupied. Swept, put in order, decorated. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and make their home there. And the last condition of that man becomes worse than the first. So also shall it be with this wicked generation. Holy smokes, folks. What a statement. Did you get that? Jesus just compared the present generation he's living in of being no different than a man possessed who had the demon expelled but then wound up with seven other demons more wicked than the first coming back to take possession. Israel was in bad spiritual shape before Jesus came. But once he came, he accomplished a tremendous lot for the entire human race of all human history. But what about the present generation of Israel that Jesus is referring to? Like a man who had a demon driven out of him, but didn't receive the Holy Spirit to fill up the void, wound up in worse shape than before because that demon came back with seven other demons more evil than the first. After Jesus accomplished his first mission and then left the planet Earth, what happened to the present generation Jesus is referring to? Barely 40 years later, in 70 A.D., Israel fell, and it fell hard. It didn't rise again until 1948, almost 2,000 years. Then Jesus turns his attention away from the Pharisees and then directs his words to everyone else and repeats something that he said at the Sermon on the Mount. Luke records this in Luke chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Jesus said, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or a crypt or hides it under a bushel measure, but instead he puts it on a lampstand so that those who are coming in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. So when your eye, your conscience, is sound and fulfilling its office, then your whole body is full of light. But when it is not sound, and when it's not fulfilling its office, then your whole body is full of darkness. 
Therefore, be careful that the light that is in you is not darkness. If then your entire body is illuminated, having no part in darkness, it will then be completely bright, as when a lamp with its bright rays give you light. And then the following is reported by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, and Luke chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. It says, Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came toward him, but they could not get to him because of the crowd. Now don't forget here that Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 22 told us that they were there to take him by force, because they kept saying he's out of his mind, he's beside himself, he's deranged. So Jesus is inside the house, surrounded by a jam-packed crowd. says Jesus' mother and his brothers came along toward him, but they could not get to him because of the crowd. Jesus was still speaking to the people when from outside his mother and brothers sent word to him, calling for him, seeking to speak to him. The crowd sitting around him said to him, Your mother and your brothers and your sisters were outside asking for you, seeking to speak to you. And Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And looking around on those who sat in a circle around him, and stretching out his hand, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. My mother and my brothers are those who listen to the word of God and do it. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Wow. You know, I can only imagine what Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters felt when they heard him say that, but I'm sorry, they had it coming. You would think that they, of all people, would have known what was going on. But Jesus makes an important point here. That old saying, that blood is thicker than water, it's not true. Water is thicker than blood. If you're talking about the well of living water, that's the Holy Spirit. All of us are born into bloodlines, but we're reborn into spiritual lines. It's deeper than the physical, and it's permanent. And with that final statement of Jesus, things apparently died down. Because we don't have anything else recorded about Jesus and the Pharisees. Nothing more about his family members trying to grab him. No more Q&A. Things died down and apparently they finally were able to get something to eat. What a day. And that's where we're going to leave it for this session, folks. Jesus will continue to turn things up a notch in our next session. We'll get into the famous kingdom parables. And one of the most exciting, breathtaking miracles that Jesus ever performed that really shows you who he really is. Fun stuff ahead. We'll see you then. Until next time, we're out of here. Take care.